Hello there, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of all things. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on things you want to hear. Enjoy the show. Today we're talking about reflections on ministerial vocation. And uh, to set us up here, I am using Eugene Peterson's Under the Unpredictable Plant, a book I first read in seminary myself. And when I read this book, it was one of the most influential uh, books I read that shaped me on what it meant to be a pastor, what it meant to be a minister. And... um, This was an important informative work uh, because it it was very real. Peterson writes in a way that I think he is not sold over by uh, cliches or by stereotypes. There's nothing simple or easy. Everything about what he writes is wrestling. Um, And that really spoke to me, um, this wrestling with pastoral identity, so much so that when I prepared for this talk, I picked up the book again and I reread Um, a lot of it. And right from page one, I mean, my goodness, it's been many years since I first read this. It stands out and, and speaks to me very boldly. He says on page one, it dawned on me that the crevasse was within me. Now he's talking about a crevasse, something splitting open in his pastoral calling and identity. And for me, years later, I mean, when I first read this, it made sense. But years later, all the more, all the more it made sense. And it's even more powerful. So he says, it dawns on me that this this crevasse that opens up within me, it was going to require more attention than I planned. Unwilling to stand staring indefinitely into the abyss or loosen my grip on either faith or vocation, options that also occurred to me. I entered the interior territory in which the split had originated and found heavily eroded badlands. That says a lot, that being a ministry, uh, being in ministry or being a minister is something that um, we don't just do by rote. It is um, something that is profoundly formative. Um, It is something that requires careful reflection. We don't just do the job. Um, And uh, he enters this crisis, he talks about. In the same way, um, I'd like to introduce the crisis to you before you have the crisis, if that makes any sense. Um, And I think Peterson sets us up really well as he talks uh, through his book about the prophet Jonah. So that's where, for the next few podcasts, we're going to camp out on this story of Jonah. And Jonah is Peterson's primary metaphor for understanding the pastoral vocation. Um, And uh, especially these two locations of Nineveh and Tarshish. Uh, If you recall, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach there. But instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah flees and goes to Tarshish instead. And there's this dual, uh, this dual momentum there. Uh, just as much as he's running away from something, you sense that he's running to something. 
I don't know how many of you, if you've already dipped your toe into ministry, you've had the sentiment, oh, it would be better if I was over there, or I would like to be in this different city, or this different parish, or calling, or this different type of ministry. And um, Peterson describes this as a, a Tarshish kind of sentiment, the, the desire to go somewhere where it's more exotic, where uh, anywhere but Nineveh is the point. So I'm going to dive into um, this subject of Tarshish here. Um, some of my own reflections combined with Peterson's reflections. Um, what is it about Tarshish? What is it about um, Nineveh that Jonah is running away from? And uh, let's, let's begin there. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Jonah says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. How do you write your emails? Do you just kind of haphazardly tap something out and then you hit send, saying like Pilate, What I have written, I have written. Or are you like me? Do you meticulously craft a message, choosing the right words so that you don't uh, send a misstatement or anything like that? You're very concerned about what you're saying. In fact, you, make great, you take great pains uh, to craft exactly what you're saying. Commentators have recognized that the book of Jonah is certainly not a haphazardly put-together book. In fact, the meticulously chosen words are arranged carefully uh, to craft an important message and important themes. So right away from verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. That word arise is a thread that goes through the entire book. Arise in the Hebrew kum. In verse 3, it says, Jonah rose up to flee. It's the same word, kum. In verse 6, uh, the sailors say, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, arise, kum, call on your God. And again, it appears in chapter 3, verse 2, where Jonah finally arises, kum, to go to Nineveh. This is something in Old Testament studies that is referred to as a leitwort, which is German for lead word. Uh, think of a heavy word that has meaning and significance and is uh, emphatically repeated all throughout. So this word arise, I think, uh, could be characterized as a lead word um, purposely uh, laid out and contrasting with Jonah's tendency to lie down. Do you hear that? Instead of arising, Jonah has this tendency to lie down. Whether it's through laziness or fear, for whatever reason, Jonah is not arising. God continues, and he says, Go to Nineveh, the great city. Now, arise, go, without the conjunction and in the middle, uh, is a grammatical construction called an asunditan. Um, an asunditan is a string of verbs that run together without any connecting conjunctions, 
and they have a way of working accumulatively with compounding effect where the weight of this string is backloaded onto the last verb. That's why when you look at this, this, uh, these words arise, go in the NRSV translation, it says go at once because there's a weight on that second, on that back verb there, arise, go. The immediacy of a call where hesitation is lethal. You're probably familiar with other stories in Scripture where um, uh, would-be disciples say, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, and then I'll follow you. Or, Lord, I will follow you, Lord, but let me say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus uh, talks about allowing the dead to bury their own dead and putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. So there's a sense of an immediacy of call, and perhaps some of you who find yourselves in seminary, you can identify with this, this, I could not delay any further, any longer. I knew that I was called. I knew that I had to obey. You resonate with this. You relate to this. And God says, go and cry out against this city of Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. To cry, to call out, to preach, make a proclamation. What God is effectively saying to Jonah, um, arise, go, cry out, is that it is time for you, Jonah, to be a prophet. And specifically, I want for you to be a prophet Nineveh, at Nineveh. Now you might say, you know, I'm feeling this. This is uh, definitely um, something that is exciting me as I'm uh, learning how to be a minister, a pastor. It's time for me to be a prophet, but just anywhere but Nineveh. Don't call me there. And we see that Jonah's response is just that in verse 3. But Jonah arose. He arose. Yeah, he arises for sure. There's that word again, that lead word that we talked about, kum. He arose, and this is exactly and precisely where the drama of the story begins. But Jonah arose. We hold our breaths, uh, we hold our breath as we um, wait to see exactly what will happen. I remember um, as a, a young child watching and re-watching some of my favorite movies and wondering if right at that pivotal moment, um, you know, will Luke run off with old Ben Kenobi? Will Frodo indeed leave the Shire? Will Neo, this time, follow the White Rabbit? Uh, I wasn't a child watching those movies, by the way. Some of them are a little bit more recent. Um, but you wonder if at this pivotal moment, Jonah is arising. Will he go to Nineveh? But right here at this um, pivotal point, it says he arose only to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So disappointingly, we see now, instead of a rising, we see the beginning of an opposite momentum. And indeed, once again, another lead word. In verse 3, he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So this word, this or these words, went down, um, in the Hebrew, yurad, 
it's a contrasting uh, momentum from the arising theme, this lead word of arise, arise, arise. But instead, Jonah goes down, 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 and you'll see just how far he goes down. Um, in some communities, uh, uh, particularly I think of the recovery community, they talk about having to hit rock bottom. And I think we would do well to learn from that, um, not only as ministers in training, but ministers who will be caring for other people. That eventually rock bottom is a place that all people need to hit, maybe even we need to hit, in order for us to become moldable and useful in God's hands. Um, perhaps more on that later, but let's continue. Uh, in verse 4, the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea, um, and uh, this, this, uh, this great storm uh, comes about that the ship was about to break. The sailors are afraid. Every, every man cries to his God, and they throw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it. And in the face of all of this you know, ruckus and all of this noise and craziness, you think that Jonah would at least have arisen to help on deck. But what does he do? There is that Hebrew word, yurat. Once again, in verse 5, Jonah went down into the hold of the ship. He lay down, and he had fallen sound asleep. So we see that he has not yet hit rock bottom. He's still falling deeper and deeper and sinking into this uh, abyss. And it continues, it says, he went down into the hold of the ship. I want to point this out because that word hold, um, uh, in the Hebrew, it talks about the extremities, the recesses of the ship. Um, he went and found the darkest corner of the ship. And for that matter, um, it's double pluralized in the Hebrew. Um, so it's not just the, the extremities or the hold or the recesses. He went into the double deeps of the ship. And, and you know what? We're still not done. He goes into the double deeps of the ship. And what does he do there? He had lain down and fallen sound asleep. I don't know any greater escape than sleep when you are not doing well. When we are trying to run away from something, forget or not deal with reality. We all, maybe we all know what this feels like to some degree, and perhaps some of us who've wrestled with depression know it even more. Jonah had went down as far away from God as he could go. The funny thing is, we don't realize how deep the rabbit hole goes. It would, it would even become more darker than this. But for now, let's just pause. Let's just pause and, and, and look at this. Jonah is running away from. He's going down instead of arising to Nineveh. He's going down, intent on running away, and for that matter, fleeing to Tarshish. He won't deal with God. He won't deal with his emotions. He won't deal with his feelings. He won't deal with reality. He says, just take me away to Tarshish where things will be better. I can be a prophet there. That's where I want to be. And um, just uh, briefly, what was Tarshish? I mean, why there? What was it about Tarshish that made Jonah uh, want to go there in particular? Why not 
uh, Jonah went down into the double recesses of the ship so that he could flee to Rome or to uh, northern Africa um, or to any other part of the ancient Near East, for that matter. What was it about Tarshish? And this is where I think Peterson um, and his exposition of Tarshish is quite helpful. You know, Peterson talks about Tarshish as this exotic place, this place where we would rather be. Instead of doing pastoral ministry in this rinky-dink parish, uh, this small congregation in this kind of backwoods part of town, I'd rather be um, in the metropolitan area where the hipsters are and in the, the cool part, the cool parts of the city. I want to be where the action's at. I want to be where Tarshish is. Other parts of Scripture describe Tarshish. First um, Kings chapter 10 talks about the ships of Tarshish bringing gold, silver, ivory, peacocks. Isaiah chapter 2 refers to the ships of Tarshish as beautiful, the beautiful craft. Commentators have described Tarshish as an idealized, far-off paradise, an exotic place of luxuries in the popular mind. And Peterson captures onto this. He, he definitely recognizes Tarshish is a place that's, that's better than where I'm at. Lord, send me to Tarshish. Don't send me. Don't send me to Nineveh. I remember um, season of my life, actually, when I had finished seminary and I was open to pastoral call. And um, uh, really, at that time, I had a young family um, and was open to gainful employment, needed to provide, and was looking far and wide. Um, I considered all of the major cities, um, New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, Houston <laughs> was not uh, certainly on the top of my list. Um, talk about Nineveh and Tarshish, but... Um, uh, it's interesting, especially if you have a blank slate, where where will you go? And it's not just about geographies and cities. Sometimes Tarshish is within. Um, sometimes it's um, about people groups or contexts. Whatever the case may be for you, um, I think it's important to consider that Tarshish is that place that I want to run to in order to run away from Nineveh. Um, I remember at the time when I was living uh, north of Seattle and I was pastoring there for a season, um, I once read a church planting proposal, not mine, but it was of another church planter. And I remember uh, this proposal for this new church plant. Uh, I think it was down in Portland. And it listed its target as Subaru owners, and indie rockers. That was their target. Smells like Tarshish to me. And I don't know today if that church is still around. I would even go so far as to argue it should not be because the ideal is so polluted with, um, with the self there. Um, the, 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 the proposal is, is, is full of ideals. And I think that's problematic. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this, and I want to read a couple of quotes from Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Um, he says, Every principle of selection that is not necessitated quite objectively by local conditions 
is of the greatest danger to a Christian community. When the way of intellectual or spiritual selection is taken, the human element always insinuates itself and robs the fellowship of its spiritual power. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. Forgive his gender-specific language there. Um, But in the poor person, Christ is knocking at the door. So we must, therefore, be very careful at this point. That's from pages 37 and 38 of Life Together. And he says elsewhere, page 26, uh, Bonifer says, We are looking for some extraordinary social experience which we have not found elsewhere. We are bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. And here's another one, uh, pages 27 and 28. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Let me just synthesize. I'm combining Bonifer uh, with Peterson here, um, all from the context of the story of Jonah. I think the message here is that um, whenever we place, uh, especially from the perspective of ministry, whenever we place something as an ideal, it becomes Tarshish. It becomes this visionary ideal of community, this extraordinary social experience, something that we wish to select, something that we would like the way we want it. Um, Whenever it works that way, ministry becomes broken. Ministry is not so much about selecting a community as much as it is about accepting a community. You see, there's a dynamic shift there where ego is no longer in the driving seat and God is truly leading the ministry. You see, if we become emotionally entangled, our ego gets involved, then this ministry is already suspect. It looks a lot more like Tarshish than it does Nineveh. We become emotionally entangled when instead what Bonifer prescribes is a geographic and circumstantial entanglement. Do you hear that? That's what Bonifer says when he says every principle of selection that is not necessitated quite objectively by local, condi- by local conditions is of the greatest danger to a Christian community. He's saying that if we are choosing our community, that if we are not... Uh, brought together by God, but we are selecting people, selecting what we want, selecting the place, selecting the ideals and the conditions, it's, it's apt to become polluted. And so to reiterate and to kind of just wrap this up, ministry, and let me say three things here. First, ministry is not about selecting a community. It's about accepting a community. Second, ministry is not about emotional entanglement. 
but it's about geographic and circumstantial entanglement. The ego is not involved. And third, ministry is about accepting whoever is on the premises. We don't get to pick and choose. As you begin to think hard about what your vocational calling is and what your work and life in ministry will look like, keep these thoughts in mind and may it shape you as you envision your own ministry to come. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.